0: Right now, it's my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, uh, Professor Ulrich Knupfelmacher. Now, neither Ulrich nor Knupfelmacher are the easiest words to get around the Anglo-Saxon tongue. So that Professor Knupfelmacher is known to his colleagues as Uli, and to many of his students as Professor K. Now if you are a reader of uh, Kafka, the uh, idea of actually meeting Professor K uh, may uh, startle you uh, a little bit. But Professor K, or Professor Knopfelmacher, is one of the senior uh, members uh, of our department. In fact, he's one of the few people on the Princeton faculty who is now uh, senior to me. He is a graduate alumnus uh, of Princeton and he is an internationally uh, renowned authority on Victorian English literature, both in prose and uh, in poetry. And he might be said to be one of the inventors of one of the hottest fields in uh, Victorian studies at the moment, that is to say the study of Victorian children's literature and he teaches a large and enthusiastically received course uh, on that topic uh, here at uh, at Princeton in addition to his academic uh, expertise i have to say uh, that professor knopfelmacher uh, is one of the great princeton faculty citizens uh, as well. When I asked him if he would be willing to give a lecture in this course, uh, he didn't hesitate for a moment, but uh, very uh, graciously agreed to uh, do so. About two or three weeks ago, he gave a lecture, which I was unable to attend because I had to do something else. Uh, A lecture in a series on Jewish life in Latin America, about which he knows a good deal from his own uh, biographical uh, experience. Again, this was a sort of uh, extra task that he took on uh, very uh, willingly, and I've heard many wonderful remarks about that lecture. And I'm looking forward, as you are now as well, to hearing his lecture on Poetry of Faith and Doubt. So help me to welcome Professor Kay.
1: Thank you for that very, very warm introduction. Uh, Professor Fleming and I have taught a course together and uh, uh, I told him that there probably will be some drawings and to be sure you have one on your, on your handout and, and one, one in here that I want to come back to. Um, I, I need, at the outset, I need to apologize for the fact that the poets I'm gonna to discuss today, uh, Hardy and Hopkins, are in a way out of sync so that uh, tonight Professor, lecture, uh, Professor Fleming will lecture on, on Blake who, of course comes much earlier at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And, um, and then tomorrow uh, morning he will lecture on Christina Rossetti, who happened to be uh, Gerald Manley Hopkins, his favorite uh, devotion, de- devotional poet. Um, and, re- and he very kindly offered me the, the other slots if I wanted uh, to go in sequence. But my own faith makes it makes it um, necessary that I uh, uh, cannot cannot you know lecture after sundown. And also, I uh, uh, tomorrow my wife is doing an exegesis that I, I need to attend. So uh, in, in morning services, so I um, for that reason I'm also apologizing for not being able to attend uh, his lectures. I want to start out by um, pointing out that the Victorian era. Um, is one that is many times described as an an era of of doubt, of unbelief. And um, so it seems paradoxical to talk about Victorian religious poetry. Uh, The uh, um, Victorian era is is known for the advances in, in geology, Darwin's evolution. Uh, bio- emphasis on biological uh, evolution, astronomy, a- and so on. And so the, the, the science, once again, as in the 17th century, began to call things in, into doubt. And Tennyson, who became the poet laureate in, in memoriam, uh, talks about, uh, in, in one of the stanzas, one of the lyrics in memoriam says, uh, there is more faith in honest doubt than all the creeds of men. Um, it seems interesting that Tennyson in 1850 at the very middle of the 19th century should have become the Victorian laureate who succeeded uh, Wordsworth. And um, and it was simply on the basis of this long elegy called in memoriam. And ideally, you know, and this always happens in the course of this nature, if there were room for extra kind of lectures and so on, uh, you probably, uh, we probably, you know, uh, ought to have had one one meeting devoted to to Tennyson alone. Um, the two poets I'm going to discuss in the second half of my lecture are in fact reacting against Tennyson from from or at least against Tennyson's style uh, from from dif- different different positions. But Tennyson um, became poet laureate uh, because he was able and I'll come back to that in a moment he was able to uh, um, create a kind of a poetry that is both in a sense skeptical and uh, uh, religious at this, at the same time, and this sort of mixture of faith and doubt is something that I want to um, and, and the crossover between faith and doubt is something that I want to want to uh, focus on today so the, the, there 's a kind of a paradox that you have this this poet who on the one hand is is uh, uh, seen as a, a poet of honest doubt, who at the same time also expresses a kind of a religious fervor, caps a religious fervor of the Victorian era. And his counterpart in the world of the novel would, would be George Eliot, uh, who, as, as you know, um, is a male pseudonym for, for Marion Evans, who lost her face when she, um, she started out as a young evangelical a uh, very devout person and lost her faith when she read uh, the so-called higher criticism of the, uh, of the Bible that was uh, promulgated by, by both uh, British but, but also German writers, and she read German. And, and it is interesting that if Tennyson became sort of the, the laureate of, of poetry, uh, she should have become the sort of unacknowledged laureate of, of the novel. Uh, displacing both Dickens and, Tha- and, and Thackeray as the sort of prime voice of, of Victorian England. And um, there's a wonderful passage, it's very much quoted over and over again, but I can't forbear sort of reading this to you, <clears throat> in which a, a young a Cambridge undergraduate called F.H. Myers um, recorded a conversation that he had when George Eliot visited the university in, in 1873. And um, she was talking and he was asking her a question and this, this is what he remembers. I remember how at Cambridge, I walked with her once in the Fellows Garden of Trinity on an evening of rainy May. Oh, we might get rain tonight uh, and it's May. Uh, and she stirred somewhat beyond her want and taking as her text the three words which have been used so often as the inspiring trumpet calls of men, the words God, immortality, duty, pronounced with terrible earnestness. How inconceivable was the first, how unbelievable the second, and yet how peremptory and absolute the third. Never perhaps, says Myers, never perhaps have sterner accents affirmed the sovereignty of impersonal, impersonal and unrecompensing law. Uh, an impersonal and unrecompensing law. This is a sort of a typically uh, Latin and Victorian uh, phrase that, that I think is something that we will find also in Hardy uh, as I, I'll try to show later on. I listened and night fell her grave majestic countenance turned towards me like a sibyl's in the gloom. It was as though she withdrew from my grasp, one by one, the two scrolls of promise and left me the third scroll only. So in other words, in a word in which um, God uh, becomes uh, something that, that is less conceivable than before, immortality uh, becomes more doubtful, Nonetheless, um, somebody who tra- who is trained in the rudiments of faith wants to maintain a moral order, an order that 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 uh, insists on duty and on on charity, um, love, as George Eliot calls it, sympathy uh, of uh, uh, be, be between uh, between uh, humans. Now, it seems interesting that she. Um, was somebody who started out, as I said, as an evangelical. And in a way, a a lot of major Victorian writers, Ruskin comes to mind, Browning, uh, all had sort of evangelical parents. Uh, And so at the same time, at the beginning of of the 19th century, a sort of uh, um, romantic revival occurred. This went hand in hand with a religious revival. a a religious revival of earnestness, of a religion of feeling and and the rise of Methodism, for instance, uh, George Eliot's novel, uh, Adam Bede deals, opens with a young woman preacher who's based on her aunt uh, uh, called Dinah Morris who preaches in a village green and moves uh, the audience to feel as if they were hearing not only the saintly Mr. Wesley, whom Dinah has known, but actually as if Jesus himself were walking among them. And so in the handout that I gave you, I wanna call attention that um, this sort of evangelical fervor that exists even in doubters or agnostics or atheists even uh, such as George Eliot is something that is inextricable from Victorian culture. And uh, in What what I sort of list there for you is that one of the um, main contributions also Victorian poetry that somehow never gets sufficiently um, emphasized is Victorian hymnody. The Victorians created some of the most fantastic uh, religious uh, hymns uh, of all kinds of different denominations, you know, Anglican, Methodist, you know, and so on. And I just uh, mentioned there Two of them, uh, say, like Jerusalem the Golden and, and, and Onward Christian Soldiers. Uh, they, in fact, sometimes put to music um, uh, the, uh, earlier poets such as Blake. But even, even um, the two writers I want to talk about later today, um, Thomas Hardy and, um, and Hopkins, were extremely musical. Hopkins insisted that his poetry had to be chanted. And, and I once had a, a student who was able, to, who had really sort of schooled herself in chanting this, this very difficult kind, kind of poetry. And it was sort of, yeah you I know, would have her come into classes and it was sort of awesome. It was this, this wonderful kind of experience. And, and uh, Hardy was very musical. His father had been a, a, a musician uh, and a fiddler. And, uh, and one poem that I want to... I talk about that you have on, 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 on the sheet um, later is, uh, is, is a poem in which his fa- father is, is is playing the fiddle. And in fact, that very poem has been set to music as have, have been so many of, of Hardy's lyrics. Uh, so what, I, what I'm trying to suggest in here is that this kind of fervor, Uh, permeates throughout in in all kinds of different manifestations and even a phrase like there is more faith in honest doubt or in all the creeds of men and in so many uh, poems that are ostensibly secular there is a language and a symbology and typology which is um, that of a culture that is deeply rooted in an an understanding of the Bible so no matter how agnostic uh, a writer may be, say, like George Eliot again, uh, that they expect in their works an absolute understanding of of, of, of the Bible. I'll try to illustrate this um, uh, a little bit later. <coughs> Sometimes, as I say in there, these hymns could be rather uh, ridiculous and this worldly, like the one that I and I cite in there who gives the breath an awful smell and hinders one from filling well. A single world the tale will tell tobacco. You know, so this uh, maybe we should, uh, now in our anti-smoking legislations, we should um, have people sing that hymn as well. Now, more interesting, I think, is uh, what I have listed there under two, which is that some of the sort of characteristic Victorian or, or some of the characteristics that we, we find in Victorian poetry, which is akin to something that Keats, who would have become the major Victorian poet had he lived long enough, uh, called negative capability, is an ability to entertain opposite, totally opposite perspectives simultaneously at the same time. And so there's this kind of doubleness of point of view that very much goes into uh, poetry, a poetry that is secular, yet has all kinds of religious allusions and religious possibilities and religious meanings that are encoded, or a poetry that is religious that can be read in a secular kind of way. And I've given you some examples there, and you might want to turn this um, purple page and look very, very, very briefly, I don't want to spend much time on it, on the poem by, uh, a poem by a, a woman poet who is now uh, being recognized as um, uh, quite a major religious poet and who was, in fact, Christina Rossetti's co- contemporary and, and friend, and they wrote poems to each other, uh, Dora Greenwell. This is a poem that's called The Sunflower, and I, I'm not going to read through it, but, but notice that, that um, what, what seems to be a kind of a naturalistic personification of a, of a sunflower and has even a kind of sort of erotic dimension as the sunflower moves uh, along with 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 the sun, in in, in, in the sky is sort of, uh, as it were, the mistress of this of this higher lover. Uh, it has, of course, a, a um, religious connotation from beginning to end. Um, you know. Um, relying on a pun that I'm sure Professor Fleming has expounded on before, S-U-N and S-O-N, and so that the sunflower is in fact a, a believer, a feminine believer, who is looking at a divine bridegroom who is, who is the son of God. Just cite the last, the last stanza, I follow one above, I track the shadow of his steps, I grow most like to him I love of all that shines below. So there's an affinity between the sunflower who is on a horizontal um, a plane and this, this sun, this orb that is unreachable, uh, unreachable for her, but nonetheless she, she and, and he are, are wedded together and she looks like a sun in her very, in her very uh, shape. Uh, Christina Rossetti about whom you'll hear more uh, from Professor Fleming tomorrow, also writes about about sunflowers occasionally. Um, As I said before, there's also the um, uh, strong sort of uh, elusive nature of Victorian poetry, where a poem that will ostensibly has nothing to do with religion will bring in a religious echoes and, and allusions to to, to to the Bible, and I'm thinking there of a poem by a very early poem for which uh, Alfred Tennyson was much ri- ridiculed, called the Kraken, uh, where you have this sort of uh, fetal creature, you know, at the bottom of the ocean. I've tried to represent him at the bottom of the, of, of that sheet, uh, that K. By the way, it doesn't stand for Professor K, but stands for Kraken. I want to reassure you about that. Um, that 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 fetal creature lying at the bottom of the ocean will, as the bottom heats up, rise to the surface in a kind of apocalyptic move, and one seen by angels and men explode. And uh, this poem, without this kind of sort of uh, religious reference, could be a kind of a fantasy of escape um, where, where Tennyson with this stage of, uh, of his career really has a sort of escapist notion and want, wants, to, wants to become unconscious and not, not have a kind of an adult consciousness of pain and mutability and, and, and change, uh, uh, identifies himself with this sort of strange, slimy and warty kind of underground uh, creature but by inserting that allusion, that biblical allusion, somehow that creates a new dimension in which you can read the the, the poem allegorically in a different way. Uh, If you turn the page again, you will find a little poem by Gerald Manley Hopkins called Heaven Haven, A Nun Takes the Veil, which I think, uh, am I correct, Professor Fleming also has in the syllabus. Uh, I think it's in there. (coughs) Now this is a poem, interesting enough, that Hopkins wrote before he converted uh, to Roman Catholicism. And as far as we can ascertain, it did not have that title. And if you put your hand over that title, Heaven Haven, subtitle, A Nun Takes the Veil, you could, in fact, read it very much as a sort of characteristically romantic, escapist kind of fantasy of a young man. I want to go to a, to a place where, there, where time stops, where there is no self-consciousness, um, and, and uh, uh, to, to flee away from the, uh, the world. There's another poem. Hopkins destroyed most of the poems that he wrote when he was still a secular young man at, at Oxford University, but there's another poem that survives and that he gave the title, The Alchemist in the City. And the alchemist Is uh, the title again alters our sort of reading of the poem, but the alchemist is clearly also a young Oxford undergraduate who yearns to be away and has this kind of escapist fantasy, somewhat like 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 the ones in this poem. But in making it by making it a nun takes the veil, he is in fact converting this poem into uh, uh, the realm that 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 is being looked for is not some kind of a uh, this worldly Eden, but becomes in fact a, a, a heaven haven, a refuge from from a, a, a sordid kind of uh, er- earthly life. So what, I, what I'm suggesting is that there are all kinds of maneuvers that Victorian poetry can do in using um, a religious vocabulary in order to um, suggest a kind of almost duality of perspectives that that otherwise uh, would, 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 would not be there. Uh, I give you there um, some other examples. Of, um, Tennyson comes to mind, uh, I already alluded to the fact that um, in memoriam can be read as a, as a poem of doubt, but can also be read as a Victorian of, uh, poem of faith. And Professor Fleming included the much more sort of orthodox and traditional kind of uh, invocation to uh, the immortal son of God that Tennyson deliberately separated from the body of the poem in memoriam at the beginning uh, of, the, uh, of the poem, and that even that one, and we don't have time to look at that, even there, there's a kind of sort of waffling uh, such as the one that, that Swinburne then rather mercilessly satirized um, by the sort of, um, you know, blurrings that, that Tennyson produces uh, Swin is, uh, Swinburne does this in a poem called The Higher Pantheism in a Nutshell, and I'll just quote you a few few uh, lines from that. One who is not we see, but one whom we see not is. Surely this is not that, but that is assuredly this. What and wherefore and whence, for under is over and under. If thunder could be without lightning, lightning could be without thunder. Doubt is faith in the main. But faith, on the whole, is doubt. We cannot believe by proof, but could we believe without? Well, it goes on and on this vein. Maybe a little bit too long, but I, I cannot resist the very last line, uh, the last uh, stanza: "God whom we see not is, and God who is not we see. Fiddle we know is diddle, and diddle we take it is d. So that, that we take it is very Tennysonian and. And 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 you know Swinburne is is sort of catching the Bard there at at at, at his own game. I also have here something to say about uh, and you can look at that and I won't go into it, about the gendering of Victorian po- uh, poetry. Even uh, if you go back to the sort of prime first mother of Victorian poets, who is Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she is in a sense a very religious poet. And then Barrett's daughters, as they're sometimes called, Christina Rossetti. Um, Dora Greenwell whom whom I mentioned but also Jean Ingelow are are women who uh, uh, remain unmarried are devoted to to a poetry that that, that is uh, devotional and and you'll hear more about Christina Rosetti tomorrow from uh, Professor Flanning who in fact is also uh, a theologian and writes theological works towards the end uh, end of her life. Um, But I want to move now to the to, to the two, two poets that, that uh, concern me, which are Thomas Hardy and Gerard Manley Hopkins. So you can see we're born only four years apart. Hopkins is, is the younger man, he's four years uh, younger than Hardy. Um, and uh, yet he dies at the age of 45 in, uh, well, still in the 19th century, whereas Hardy becomes this sort of Victorian relic who still continues to live well into modernism, well into into the into the 20th century, uh, and does not die until until 1928. And in fact, the the one poem that that um, we won't have time to discuss, but I would love for you to look at the convergence of the Twain is is uh, written in in 1912 um, and has to do with the the sinking of the Titanic and. I taught this poem um, just when the movie Titanic came out and my students were unusually interested in it. Um, Any anyway, rate, what, what do these two writers have in common? They, they seem so utterly different. Well, I've already mentioned the fact that both of them um, are musical, um, which is not surprising. Uh, Hopkins, towards the end of his career, was in fact thinking of giving up poetry uh, and, and writing oratorios uh, and, and pure music. Um, but they also started out as visual artists, Hardy trained as an architect, and Hopkins apparently was quite consummate um, um, sort of pre-Raphaelite painter who then, um, in, once he decided to become a Jesuit priest, decided to burn all of his canvases. So we have no, none of his paintings, but we do have... Uh, the drawings that he makes in his in his uh, diaries in his, in his in his in his journals, and he's an extraordinarily skillful draftsman. And Hardy, in fact, um, illustrated some some of the poems um, uh, that he that he published at the at the turn of the, uh, of the century. Um, but more important, I think, is that both of them react in a way against the ornateness of mid-Victorian poetry against this sort of um, decorativeness um, uh, and musicality and tonality of of, uh, a poet like like Tennyson. Um, Hopkins calls Tennyson's style a Parnassian and he feels that that is inferior to uh, uh, an earlier kind kind of more primitive uh, poetry. Uh, although he, he respects it, and and, um, and Hardy similarly uh, is um, uh, down down on on on, on uh, Tennyson and uh, says he wants to avoid what he calls the jeweled line in poetry, something that is and Tennyson sort of loves in his early poetry particularly to to have sort of diadems and jewels and pearls and things things like that, and and he wants to avoid that sort of decorativeness. Um, so both of these poets want to return to a more vigorous, kind of primordial language, which also of course links them to somebody like uh, Wordsworth, um, of the prime you know rom- romantic uh, uh, poet and Hopkins has I might come to that in, uh, a little bit later, but Hopkins has some very interesting things to say about Wordsworth's immortality ode which he tends to take very seriously as a religious poem, even though, uh, you know, others had denounced it as almost a quasi-pagan or platonic kind of poem. So um, they they want to um, go back to a more natural language, and yet at the same time, they also create an unnatural language in the sense that they press together hyphenate words uh, that are um, you know, seemingly apart, and so it's almost you could say that they're creating new a new kind kind, kind of diction. Now, what what I want to to stress in what remains of this lecture is um, a certain amount of crossover. Uh, as I suggested at the beginning, a a poet of doubt or writer of doubt can cross over by virtue of the fact that his doubt is resisting against against a former belief, necessarily has to cro- uh, cross over into realms of faith. And Hopkins, and I probably won't get to that uh, sufficiently to document that for you, but if you look at the so-called terrible sonnets, uh, terrible not in, in, in the sense that they are bad to read, but aw- awesome, terror-inspiring, uh, sonnets of introspection that that Hopkins write at, at the end of career, and and we gave you um, two of those um, that uh, that were distributed. Um, Thou art indeed just Lord, and carry and comfort. are our poems in which which Hopkins is then um, confronting a kind denuded universe, that the universe of of plenitude of of of, uh, of um, a of filled, mar- filled marvels has disappeared and it, there's just um, a, a exacting poet who feels insufficient, who, um, who suffers from a sort of extreme exigence in the demands, from the demands, religious demands that he places on himself, but also places on his God. And so that, that, that's almost a, a poetry of despair even though it is still couched in re- religious terms, and it's interesting that in 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 one of those those uh, sonnets um, um, you know uh, the one on um, um, thou art indeed just Lord that that happens to be taken from from Jeremiah so it's a it's a jeremiah it's a lamentation so there's a kind of a crossover between these two poems and, and that's what I want to look at now. Let me finally get to an explanation of this marine landscape that I have um, painted there for you. And, and the point is that Hopkins starts out his career as a poet. It's, it's, on, the pink, it's on the purple sheet. Um, Hopkins starts out his career uh, when his order uh, allows him to publish an a, uh, elegy um, commemorating the death of, of nuns who sank with a ship called the Deutschland? And Professor Fleming has—it's a very long elegy, and Professor Fleming has, has reproduced for you the first part of this five-part five-part poem. Um, obviously, we don't have time to look at that at that, at that poem, which is also a very difficult kind, kind of poem. But it's interesting that he should begin his career with that, and that Hardy, once he has established himself as a Victorian modern Victorian slash modern poet um, uh, since he had been a Victorian novelist who gave up the novel and then returned to his first love, which was poetry, that Hardy should have written this other poem about a shipwreck, uh, which is the convergence of the twain, which we did distribute uh, for you and you may want to think about and, and, and talk about. And I've sort of given you this kind of marine landscape to suggest that they, that drowning, um, which of course both of these poems deal with, uh, the sinking of a ship, is something that runs really through English literature and always has a kind of religious dimension. And so that you get Milton's Lycidas, which is stimulated by 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 by, by uh, the death of someone called called King, you get Wordsworth's uh, elegiac stanzas, which are uh, produced by, by uh, or stimulated by uh, the drowning of his brother John who was a captain who was sailing out with a ship and died in the mouth of the river. You get Barrett's sonnet, Grief, wonderful sonnet uh, uh, you know, in which she says that hope, hopeless grief is passionless which is stimulated by, 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 by the drowning death of her brother. And, and Tennyson in certain lyrics of the memoriam also figures... The, the lost friend that he has as somebody first was brought back by a ship, but then is also uh, drowned and and therefore for uh, forever irrecoverable. irrecoverable. And ironically enough, uh, one of Tennyson's sons uh, died on board of a ship going coming back from India and had to be buried by 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 sea. And so, sort of like life imitated art. Tennyson asked that um, any edition of his poems be concluded by this poem in which, which is called Crossing the Bar, some of you may know that, uh, in which the poet sets out past a bell into a kind of a sunset and, and, and hopes to see his pilot fa- face to face. So there's a kind of a, again, religious quasi-religious closure that he wants to put on, on his poetry. But I, I, want to, I want to look, um, to start this out by looking at some specific poems more, more closely. And I want to start out by looking very briefly at the poem that you still have on, the, on that purple sheet, which is um, Thomas Hardy's A God Forgotten. Uh, and I think my inclusion of this, this poem uh, simply is there to show you that here's somebody who's writing what is in fact a kind of survival cosmic, grotesque joke about a god who has totally forgotten that he created this puny little race on a puny little planet and he has bigger and better things to do and then the, the speaker who is a dreamer who seems to have arrived to, to god as a sort of an intercessor for humanity only reminds god that he's forgotten to extinguish this, this race uh, human race that has failed him. So there's a kind of sort of a grim humor that, that Hardy enjoys uh, using also in, in, in his novels. And I know that many of you have read uh, some of Hardy's novels. Um, and yet in this sort of philosophical dream or philosophical fantasy about snap ties between the human and the divine, this God, nonetheless, is, is in in his way a caring God, who then decides to put this suffering humanity out, uh, you know, out of uh, out of its pain and instructs messengers to come down and have a kind of apocalypse that will end the suffering. So, if you look at the the next to uh, to to last uh, um, stanza, it says. Um, Hence, messengers in straightway put an end to what men undergo. Uh, and so that, that the poem is ironic in the sense that the man who has come to plead before God only receives a kind of death sentence for God, but this God is still in a sense merciful because he has long since indulged in better experiments than the first failed uh, experiment with Adam and Eve. And so he is now willing to undo his, um, you know, the, the creature that he has uh, created. This goes back to, to 17th century poetry that we starts like Donne. You know, "Has thou made me?" As sonnet, "Has thou made me? Shall thy work decay?" Um, you know, and where God, the maker, has the power to reassemble, but also to destroy and undo his, his creation. Um, I, I don't want to spend much time on this poem, but you, you might want to look at it uh, m- uh, more closely on its own. But I want to start out by going now to the, to the yellow sheet and to and so try to pair there for you um, comparable, or I should probably say contrastable uh, poems. And the first one is The Self-Unseeing, which is by Hardy, and the second one is Pied Beauty, uh, which is not really a sonnet. It's something that uh, Hopkins calls a Kirtle sonnet, a sonnet that doesn't have 14 lines, but is even shorter, and has only uh, 11 lines. Um, but so they are sort of comparable in length. You have you have a poem that has um, three stanzas of four lines each, and both of them are sort of simpler than certainly uh, the later sonnets. Uh, by Hopkins like the Windhover or or God's grandeur, which we could spend uh, two hours on just just talking about. And the reason I want to contrast these two is because um, they are in a way um, they rely on the same process of fragmentation and unity, but they approach this uh, from totally uh, opposite ends, so that Hardy's the self unseeing is the representation of a moment of unity, a brief moment of symbiosis, something akin to what Wordsworth would call a spot of time. But this moment had no meaning in the present, because in the present, at the time it was experienced, uh, the self was unconscious of this fusion that existed. And it is only meaningful in the... In, in, uh, in, in recollection after, long after this happened where there's a dis- disparity between the past and a new present that now uh, finds this unity, this fusion irrecoverable. So, so Hardy's poem relies on a manipulation of contraries uh, and that they begin to sort of accrue in a very interesting kind of way. We'll look at it more closely in a moment. Hopkins, by beauty on the other hand, insists that in fact there is a unity in their world of contraries. Uh, glory be to God for dappled things, things that are um, only available in spots, in fragments, like the m- uh, dappled means mottled. Uh, the, 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 the stipple, he also used the word stipple, which is an artist, uh, word that artists use, use, use stipple, um, you know it 's almost like pointillism, you, you you create a lot lot of spots, but they cohere into a wholeness, so uh, although our this worldly eye sees this disparates, if I look at you sitting in here, everybody looks different, and yet on the, there 's a totality uh, that 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 unites you all, and this is what that poem call, calls attention to. Um, so I want to go through each or each of these two, if if, if I may. Uh, let me read the first one aloud. The self unseeing, even the title is interesting. Is there a self that has not seen, or is the unseeing of a self? <clears throat> it's a deceptively simple poem. Here is the ancient floor, foot worn and hollowed and thin. Here was the former door where the dead feet walked in. She sat here in her chair, smiling into the fire. He who played stood there, bowing it higher and higher. Childlike, I danced in a dream. Blessings emblazoned that day. Everything glowed with a gleam, yet we were looking away. Let me go through this. and. You may well ask me, well, why you why you even presenting this poem? It is not a religious poem? Is that poem that has really anything to do with with, with flesh and spirit, which is the like of this course. I think it is. I think one could even argue that the sort of trinity um, of characters in this poems, and even the the, the trinitarian arrangement of of three stanzas. Um, that each one contributes something different, but, but particularly the, the trinity of characters, a father, a mother, and a child, um, uh, suggest something that is quite religious. So that in that, um, and, and, and this blessings that emblazoned that day, when everything glowed with a gleam, uses a kind of religious vocabulary and one can even sort of think about halos that, that in uh, think about a Christ child uh, possibly sitting with a um, uh, Virgin Mary and and Joseph looking on to it, and and the, and, the, and the child is, you know, nimbus is in effect t- touching its parents. That may be a stretch. That may be t- too far, to, to you know, too far out for uh, uh, for you to um, to, to accept. But it seems to me that the the notion of something, a moment of splendor uh, that was a moment of fusion, a a moment of unity that disintegrates and that can only be understood in retrospect and therefore in a sense never was appreciated at the time um, is something that in a sense um, has a religious dimension. It has something to say about our experience in in a temporal world. Notice how the poem begins, here is the ancient floor, foot worn and hollowed and thin. Here was the former door where the dead feet walked in. Uh, we are, we don't know where that here is. We are in some kind of a physical anchors some physical kind of locality. Um, but immediately um, there, there is a kind of sort of breakdown into parts, Here was the former door. The door no longer exists. And in fact, um, you know, this poem is based on Hardy's returning to a house where he and his parents had lived and, uh, and the door had been walled up and the door had been moved about 10 or 12 feet farther down and another the entrance was done. So the entrance to this home no, lo- no longer exists. Um, you could even, again, if you want to be sort of allegorical, symbolic, you could argue the entrance into an earlier kind of system of belief is gone. And then that that very powerful son, he were the dead feet walked in. Uh, we don't even see a whole person walking in there. We just sort of see amputated dead feet. And, and feet, whenever poets use the word feet, it always, uh, resonates with the fact that poetry is made of, of feet, right? A poem, a verse has one foot a, a, a after another. So there's a certain sense that even the dead feet suggest a, the impossibility of creating poetry out of, out of a, something that has been lost. Now, you can only construct this sort of on your own and in, 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 in it's difficult to figure it out that um, the dead feet are going to belong to the he this sort of on your own in and it 's difficult to figure it out that um, the dead feet are going to belong to the he who of, of the second stanza who happens to be uh, the father figure in, in in this poem. She sat here in her chair, smiling into the fire Notice that is that we 've moved from from uh, a is, which is in the in the present, the which is the present of a return uh, to a was, and then to a sat. So so we, we are now in in, in even uh, in that past of the was where the former door existed. He who played stood there, bowing it higher and higher. Now, bowing or bowing. Is, is a is a when you think about it, it has sort of a contrary kind of meaning. Because if you bow, you you base yourself, you you put your head down. It's an act of submission, an act of of um, deference to a king or to, or 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 to God in a, in a service, but. Here, the movement is not downward, it's upward. It's bowing it higher and higher. And, of course, what he's referring to is the bow, the bow of a fiddle. And he's referring, as I mentioned before, his father was a fiddler, a violinist, and, and the child loved uh, this music, which was, for him, uh, a connect, established a kind of world of connection. and um, And so... And the father would in fact play music at religious occasions like like weddings and so on and and so the father is going higher and higher and higher, lifting things up towards a higher higher dimension, which again, given sort of that all of English literature can be reduced uh, to verticals and horizontals you know is asserting that vertical axis of a divine order that that, uh, that confers meaning to a to an horizontal kind of plane. So we have a she and a he and and then finally the I um comes in in a childlike I danced in a dream. So the I is is only formed through these through the recollection of, of this moment of fusion and then everything glowed with a gleam, yet we were looking away. And to me, the most painful part of this poem is that we. There's only the possibility of a we, of, of a fusion between the he and the she and the I uh, in a remembrance of a moment that was ephemeral and that was lost altogether. So as I'm saying, this poem then uh, relies on disjunction, on, on, on disparates, and, and, and yet in its look at these disparates is also, in a sense, um, hallowing a, a, a moment of, 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 of unity uh, that, 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 that is lost. Just as the poem about the God forgotten is, in a sense, wishes that God might not have forgotten um, this humanity from which he has been severed, from, from which he has uh, um, been been removed. Now, if you turn from this to to Hopkins's Pied Beauty, to a poem in, of equivalent length, you will see that in here, um, the whole, from beginning to end, this is an assertion of unity in disunity. So, so whereas, whereas Hardy is sort of saying that a unity becomes. Uh, Possible only in a past that was not perceived when it was a present. Here we are in a kind of an isness that is forever an isness uh, in, a, in a present that lasts forever because of God's uh, own beauty, which is past change. Um, so let me read that poem Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color, as a brinded cow. For rose molds, all in stipple upon trouted swim, fresh fire-cold chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted in peace, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades. He probably wants to pronounce all trades, uh, because he puts an accent there. And all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, Whatever's fickle freckled who knows how with swift slow sweet sour a dazzle dim he fathers forth whose beauties past change praise him so we recognize that this poem which ends with the word him is in fact a hymn from beginning to end glory be gro- glory be to god it needs to be chanted it needs to be be, be sung aloud by ideally by in in a congregation where everybody is different and yet everybody becomes united by the harmony of of, of this musical thrust now hopkins does some very interesting things in here um, notice that he is using different elements of uh, air earth water and fire throughout this poem which are usually seen as opposites, but notice how he imposes one on another. Um, Glory be to God for dapple things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow. How can a sky look like a brinded cow? Um, Your footnote uh, tells you that brindled or brinded means streaked. So so he sees, the sort of different colors, which makes a cow that has different multicolored, um, spotted, mottled again, hide, he sees that in the sky. And so a cow which is on earth and, you know, and, and, and uh, can certainly not fly, unless uh, you use nonsense verse, verses, uh, it becomes merged with air with the element of air. Then again, rose moles all in stipple about trout that swim. Um, rose moles um, are, are sort of spots, rosy spots, but now they're put on, on trouts that are swimming in, in the water. So you have sort of earth imposed on water and then fresh fire-cold chestnut falls uh, this is one of these instances I said before, where he joins words together to create a sort of new kind of, k- 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 kind of, almost a new vocabulary, as it were. Uh, what is a fresh fire called? Chestnut fall. Well, what you have to then sort of decode this, take it down further into its component parts, and what you have is is a chestnuts that have fallen in the autumn, and seem to be burning, as it were, on, on the ground looking like little coals that are burning. Chestnuts are black and, and they, they, they are like coals but of course chestnuts are also roasted and are going to be roasted in, 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 in fire. So you get fire and earth in here. So there's a kind of mixing of the elements that, that is almost sort of imperceptible. It, it, you, you're, you're moving moving around, and then comes more and more uh, heaped on catalogs. Finch's wings Landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow. Um, it, you know, are fold, fallow, and plow. Are they are they um, verbs? Are they nouns? Or is there a mixture of both? What exactly does this mean? Is he talking about animal folds? Hey, think about the British landscape with all of its neatly sort of geometrical kind of patterns. Is he talking about uh, places of pasture for animals? places that, are, that, that are, are fallow because they have been unseeded, places that are, are plowed because they are going to be seeded. Uh, that seems to be the implication. But even, even sort of syntactically, um, the, the, it's, it's hard to tell. Are we in the realm of adjectives? Or are we in the realm of nouns? And that contributes to this sort of sense of fragmentation, of differentness. And, and that's exactly what he wants. Because he wants us this is still part of a paean to God and a pra- praise to God uh, for this variety, this superabundance, for difference in, 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 in the universe. And then that's picked up in, 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 the la- in the last lines all things counter, contrary, original, spare, strange. Everything is individuated and is different. Whatever is fickle, freckled, he takes, uh, Hawkins likes to use words and, that have similar kind of sounds and even argues that a word like freckle developed possibly from f- from fickle. Sometimes in his letters or diaries, he makes long sort of lists of, uh, of Anglo-Saxon words. And then he gives you this contrast, swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, and only to bring it back with that F sound that, that has been mounting from four, 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 Finch's wings, um, fresh fire coal, um, he fathers forth. Uh, God is the unitary figure who has created this enormous diversity. Now, that is something that, that begins to fall away, uh, as I suggested before, in, in the uh, terrible sonnets. And when, when there's sort of allusion to a landscape, to nature, in those terrible sonnets, it is a mental landscape. It is no longer out there. It no longer has that kind of isness, the tangibility, the palpability, uh, that uh, that the landscape in here, or in the wonderful poem that I put um, on on the other side of the sheet, God's grandeur, uh, which we could again spend uh, a good hour talking about. Um, uh, possess. I just want to, if you turn the, the sheet to, to God's grandeur, I, I just want to talk about the one word charged, and to show you how Hopkins charges that single kind of word. That word goes back to to um, Wyatt, who is imitating Petrarch. Uh, and in a poem called "My My Galley," charge it with forgetfulness, where the word "charge" uh, can mean different things—weighted down and, and, and so on. But what Hopkins is doing, he in that word "charge," he sets up a multiplicity of meanings. And go back to what what I said earlier about the Victorians being able to entertain opposing meanings uh, at the same time. Well, he almost goes beyond that by giving not only dualistic meanings but, but, uh, but more than two meanings. And it seems to me that the word charged here can mean three different things. It can mean something that is stored, that is imminent like electricity in a cloud that then needs to be discharged which is what the poem does. But the word discharged also suggests that if something is charged you know, I charge you with this I charge you with the well-being of Princeton University students, that means entrusted with, you know. uh, But also to be commanded to tell. It is the charge of a prophet, it is the charge of a poet to to tell, to communicate insights that that he possesses. And then thirdly, is a word that we still use in Master Charge, um, it also has to do with financial transactions. You're if you if you if you charge something or charge something, you are asked to pay for something, and, and in all of these meanings, what he suggested is a kind of a, a conduit for discharging the grandeur of God uh, through this electric shock, through a, a trust that, that that comes with God, and through a um, obligation that. Approaches a kind of financial obligation, uh, going back to St. Matthew's, um, you know, placing, um, you know, gold and silver, you know, in, in not on earth or you know, trusting the moth that rusts, but but going uh, to to a higher kind of monetary order, if you want to put it this way. Now, I don't have time to show you how all of this gets beautifully. Uh, carry it out throughout this poem, that he will come back to these meanings. For instance, taking the third meaning uh, of uh, asked to pay for, charged, all is seared with trade. You know, why, why is trade going in here? You know, um, wonderful middle, middle section. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shares men's smell, The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. He does hear something similar with that foot feel, sort of that cut off foot like the dead feet that Hardy did in his poem. But then comes the volta, the turn of the sonnet, and for all this, nature is never spent. Again, spent meaning um, it still carries within it all of this electricity, all of this charge, um, it, is, it is, you know, a constantly capable of refueling itself, but also spent in the sense of spend, spe, spe, spend, spending money. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and then the marvelous return to to Christ and to the Holy Ghost in, in the last four, four lines. And though the last lights of the black west went all oh, morning, all the brown brink eastward springs... Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings, I love the way he goes from W B W B and then reverses it with B W. You know, world broods warm breast, bright ah bright wings. Uh, it's a poem again that you need to read aloud to yourself. It needs to be chanted. I can't 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 do justice. And I want to conclude very briefly um, by alluding to the two bird poems that you have on the other side of the page. Uh, We're running out of time and there's no time to go through each one of them. But I want to um, suggest that in Hardy's poem, again, in this sort of rather depressing denuded landscape which he deliberately temporarily places at the turn of the century so that the, 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 the landscape is looking at uh, which is devoid of music the, 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 the bare branches of the trees seem to score this, the sky as if they were uh, broken lyres uh, nonetheless appears this little tiny bird whom we can see that flings its hope against this landscape, and the speaker has to allow the possibility that this bird knows something that he, with his human consciousness, uh, uh, d- d- does not know. This poem has other kind of sort of context that I won't even go into, which have to do with all the romantic poems about birds and nightingales, and um, you know and. Uh, um, swallows and um, and skylarks, but the Windhover is 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 even more interesting because it again shows Hopkins' ability to fuse things that one would normally think are utterly separate. What does a hawk that who is flying up in the air have to do with Christ? How can I write a poem about a bird that I've observed sort of riding the sky um, and dedicate this poem to Christ our Lord. Well, I just wanna leave you with this thing that I put up there on the board, which is to suggest that Hopkins, who was a painter, uh, has exactly knows what he's doing. And if you look at that, you can see that the bottom of of a a hawk, the wind hover, is, is um, I didn't have any red, so it's purple there, um, but that, that fits the color of this sheet, I suppose. Uh, has a, a coloration, the, the, the plumage is, uh, is, is gray or, or bluish and so on, but at the bottom it has this red uh, 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 um, plumage. And what that then makes him think about is Christ on the cross, and that Christ on the cross is bleeding and and he sees the same kind of colors as it were, but the poem suggests a kind of internal Christ um, which in the first part, the bird is still in hiding. My heart is in hiding, stirred for a bird. Uh, and it's then uh, not until he accepts the fact he is on this horizontal realm of uh, that we were just uh, looking at where, you know, Generations have trod, have trod, and trod. And and he sees himself as a clergyman, as somebody like a plowman. And remember in Chaucer, um, the brother of the ideal character in the Canterbury Tales, the clergyman, uh, the parson, happens to be a plowman. And in fact, Hopkins writes another poem about somebody called Harry Plowman. Uh, The man who plows, who plods, who goes on the bent down mammon-like you know nonetheless is fulfilling the task of this divine um, upper uh, drama uh, that is Christ a Christ that he uh, he compares to the bird a bird that is himself of course a chivalric bird and therefore allows all of these allusions to, to chevaliers and so on I've given you all the footnotes in there, and you can recreate this for yourself but what does a plowman do? He plows cilion. He goes with another V-shaped bird-like plow and cuts through the dark earth. And when he hits a rock, sparks start to fly and red appears underneath this bluish um, plow. And that then permits him to think of Christ in a, in a more... Religious sense, not just of the Christ within, but of, of, of the the blood of Christ that then flows and redeems the, the blood that goes through the through the gaseous gold vermilion and then can redeem humanity it's, it's, Hopkins said that this was his uh, he considers his best poem, and I would even go so far as to say that this is one of the really truly great poems of the English language and Again, I have to apologize for merely sort of dabbling with it and not, not get, getting, getting enough into it. But I, I got to stop, and uh, I'm sure you have some questions um, to raise. We have time for about two questions. Sorry, that was so loud. Any takers? I'm sorry about that. I, not, no, that's wonderful. I tend, that's I tend wonderful. to be long winded. Uh,
0: I, I was particularly. Uh, uh, Struck by many of the the ways in which you had the different poets being conscious of each other, referring to each other, and I, I remembered the the wonderful story of Hardy recalling that Wordsworth had viewed him in his cradle and Gray had viewed Wordsworth in his cradle. Do you think this was something that was particularly Victorian, or has always gone on?
1: I I think Victorian. I think you're right. Victorian poets are uh, extraordinarily conscious of the Romantic poets. That precede them, because Romanticism was this sudden burst of genius, and then you know only Wordsworth is the one who lived really into the Victorian age, and so there is a kind of a admiration, and yet also sort of timidity and, and fear of of that total devotion you know to the, to a romantic and kind of vision, and um, you your question permits me to go back to what it was. What it was mentioning before uh, is that when Hardy, um, uh, when Hopkins, see Hardy admired Wordsworth. There was his his his, the the prime poet. Although he also liked Shelley, Shelley and Keats. But but Hopkins says in um, in uh, a letter that he writes to Robert Bridges, uh, where Robert Bridges has sort of uh, attacked Wordsworth's Immortality Ode. You know. This is sort of quasi-philosophy, it's not really an important sort of, sort of poem and so on. And there, there was sort of a camp in Victorians, those who attacked the immortality, of Odin, so, also, so it was great. And Hopkins, to great surprise of Bridges, because after all, Wordsworth is really, as I said earlier, sort writing a platonic fantasy, as it were, says there are in human history, in the history of human consciousness, there are few times when somebody comes and creates a shock, and, and he says that the, uh, one such person was Plato, who, uh, you know, created a, sh- a, a shockwave. And notice that this is you know, pre-Christian. And, and then he says, and another person, or, or another text like that, was uh, Wordsworth's Immortality Ode. And, and I wrote this down, and he's, um, he says... Um, um, Well, I I thought I wrote it down, but uh, but he basically what what he says is that um, Wordsworth gave another such shock to human nature, and he says I have not recovered from that shock still. You know, i 'm still it, 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 people tremble you know this is after, and this reminds me of that line in god 's grandeur where shook with foil where he, he wants us the footnote explains this to you wants us to see that there 's almost like an electric discharge such as it was in the Elizabethan stage when they shook sort of tin foil and it looked like lightning and and so he says there, are, there, there is this imminent sort of power not just in in God, obviously, for him, but even in previous poets who then can discharge it and others can, can, can pick it up from him. So it's a, it's a very interesting question. Thank you.